invite you now to turn with me to the opening Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, which you may find on the back of our book of praise on page 519, page 519. church confesses, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and miseries. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. There ends our reading of the Heidelberg Catechism. And after the sermon, let us sing in response from Psalm 130, all stanzas of Psalm 130. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to scan your house from top to bottom, noting everything that you have in your possession, do a quick little mental inventory, as it were, would you be able to find any items in that church, in your home, that are 450 years old or older? I would hazard a guess that unless you are an antique collector, you probably would be hard-pressed to rummage up even just one thing. Even if you're into collecting antiques, even then you might not have something so old, so antique. Most things don't seem to have that long of a lifespan. We use something until its usefulness expires, it wears out, or we lose it somewhere. Once something passes its best before date, we junk it, we chuck it into the garbage, and after that it's usually gone for good. But this afternoon I draw your attention to something, something which most of you have in your possession, something which some of you might be holding in your hands this very moment, something that is 450 years old, 451 to be exact, and it has not lost 
its value or usefulness over that time. If you haven't guessed it, I'm speaking about the Heidelberg Catechism. Though its age pales in comparison to the number of years that that the Bible, the Word of God, has been in existence, we would nevertheless be impoverishing ourselves if we did not appreciate, cherish, and love the age-old treasure that we have in the confession of Reformed believers passed down to us in the Heidelberg Catechism. Now maybe this surprises you somewhat. Maybe you're thinking, you're exaggerating, Pastor, Reverend, you're dreaming. How is a document that's 450 years old going to benefit me in any way? What's the point of devoting our time and and attention to hearing it all preached again, especially for those who have heard the catechism preached over and over many times before? Brothers and sisters, why do we bother? Why go through this again and again? Well, here's why. Let me make this practical. Say it happens this week at work or school or in town. You get to talking with someone. And the conversation turns to the topic of your Christian faith. And the person speaking with you says to you, I don't consider myself to be a Christian. What's Christianity really all about anyways? And why do you believe it? All that stuff. And put on the spot like that, what will you say in response? How will you answer those questions? Maybe for some of us, we might be stuck for words at that point. But let the Heidelberg Catechism come to the rescue for you. In this precious document, the church of ages past has has untied our tongues. And by putting together for our benefit and understanding and encouragement, a faithful summary of the Christian faith, entirely faithful to the teaching of Holy Scripture. For the Christian faith is not a mere intellectual exercise. It's not just about having a a neat and, and tidy set of doctrine or getting all of our theological ducks in a row. It's about having reason for joy and hope in life, which renews our minds and produces in us a type of transformed living. The catechism will go on to spell out in further detail the joy and the peace and the comfort we possess in knowing the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we bother with this. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. For this is what we need more than anything else in life and in death. Therefore, this afternoon, we'll spend our time dealing with the Catechism's departure point in Lord's Day 1, which sums up what the following Lord's Days will flesh out in further detail. Therefore, I proclaim to you the Word of God as it has been faithfully summarized in Lord's Day 1 under the following theme. Embrace the joy of divine comfort. And this 
point first that this comfort is founded upon a complete set of gracious truths. Secondly, this comfort is foundational for our complete living in everlasting joy. First, this comfort is founded upon a complete set of gracious truths. Well, every journey has to begin somewhere. And when it comes to the journey of explaining and and unfolding our Christian faith, there are options for the, the Bible is a big book, a rich book. For instance, consider how the Belgic Confession begins. It starts with, there is one God, and continues from there. Or consider another historic Reformed Confession, the Westminster Catechism, which begins with, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the Westminster Confession starts with the topic of Scripture, begins there. And so there already we have three different possible angles that we could start with. God, glory, Scripture. But the Heidelberg Catechism takes a bit of a different tack. It starts with comfort. Comfort that addresses our greatest need. And that great need is implied in the opening question that's asked. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the the assumption behind the question is that we need comfort. Comfort for life and for death. And that there is only one answer that can provide that special comfort that fits the bill. All this is taken for granted in the catechism's opening question. And so that's where we begin, starting from a place of need and neediness. Why? Because we are all sinful conceived and born in sin. And sinners left on their own, left to themselves, have no lasting comfort. In this life, which is no more than a constant death, as we just heard in the baptism form, every sinner shares in the problem of having something lacking in their lives. We are all bankrupt in the comfort department. But everybody on this planet needs comfort. Things are not good as they presently and naturally are. They are not as they should be. In our sin, we are uncomfortable. Sin causes us to experience discomfort. We therefore need someone to give us something that will give us a sense of comfort. Now maybe you're thinking all uh, about this, questioning all this and thinking, do I really need this comfort? I'm a happy guy. I'm a happy girl. Life is good for the most part. I'm fine where I'm at. I'm good. Thanks. I'm comfortable already. Don't need this comfort. But if that's what you're thinking at this point, I put it to you that you do not know what true 
discomfort you are in. True discomfort is not having a, a rock in your shoe or an ache in your back or having the blues or being bothered by some kind of affliction or disease. No, true discomfort comes primarily from sin. It's sin that makes us all pathetic people, and pathetic people need comfort. So refusing comfort, then, is the most unwise and, and foolish thing for us to do. Instead, we must recognize our sin and humbly confess it today before it's too late so that we may experience this true comfort already now. For our great God has in His marvelous grace provided us with comfort. And this is not the kind of comfort you can enjoy at a, at a mattress store or a furniture store by, by slouching on their comfy cozy, cushy furniture or mattresses, it's, it's deeper, much deeper than that. Comfort is the midst, it's comfort is good in the midst of bad. Good that takes care of the bad, providing relief from agony and discomfort. God has given us comfort that comes in the gospel. We need this comfort in order to cope with the problem of our sin. Now, where does this comfort actually begin? The Catechism teaches us in the first place that we must not look inward, but we must look outward. Something we heard about <coughs> already this morning. We must look outward to what God has done. The Catechism's answer begins by saying that our only comfort consists firstly in realizing that I am not my own. Essentially, the Catechism is saying here, leave your ego, leave your efforts at the door. Now, isn't it curious that the Catechism's answer begins with this very sobering confession like a cold shower. And yet it is a, a thoroughly biblical point and, and biblical confession to make. We are not free unto ourselves to do what we want to do, to call our own shots and to be our own boss. How sad it is then when sometimes we might hear Christians give each other the advice, it's your life. Do with it as you wish. Who cares what others say or, or if others disagree with you? You know, if other Christians disagree with you and call you to task on it, do whatever seems right to you. Well, I put it to you that that is not Christian advice. That's encouragement to continue down the path to destruction. That's a push in the wrong direction. For we are not masters of our own destiny. We belong to someone else. We were designed to belong. God made us to belong to Him, body and soul. See, the catechism is employing slavery language here. But 
make no mistake, this is not oppression. This is one of the most beautiful paradoxes of the Christian faith and religion. It is only when you are bound to Christ that you are truly free. To be free, you must become a slave of Christ. Sounds strange to you, perhaps bizarre. Well, it's kind of like a fish. A fish is bound to the water that it swims in. And yet, there in the water is where the fish is truly free. A fish is only free when it's in the water. When it's taken out of the water, it will quickly die. For water is its element, the best place for it to be. That's the same way it is also with our belonging to Christ. It's a wonderful kind of belonging. It's not like being physically bound with handcuffs or or chains. It's about being bound in the same sense as when one is adopted into a loving home and family. We are only at home with Christ. Lord's Day 1 reveals that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all contribute to our salvation. The Father loves us and brings His will to pass. The Son died for us in order to set us free from sin. And the Spirit renews us and empowers us to live by faith. We belong to Christ. We do not primarily belong to the church. Please understand this point. The Christian faith is not about sitting in these benches Sunday after Sunday, but meaning absolutely nothing to you once you leave the exit in the back. What's the value of that kind of faith? It's none. It's dead. Flatline. No, we belong to Christ. And we must be drawn to Him, become united with Him, because He bought us with His precious blood. By His death and resurrection, He removed our sin and guilt. And disarmed the power of sin and Satan so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that the Spirit will impress these gracious truths upon your heart so that you may have the assurance and direction and new life that God promises. When we are in Him, we are preserved in this life and also after death in the next life to come. Not a hair will fall out of our heads apart from the will of our Father who will accomplish His salvation for us. Therefore, Christians have received the gracious gift of everlasting comfort. But what should this comfort produce in us. We consider this in our second point as we look at how the comfort we have is foundational for our complete living in everlasting joy. Someone might object to the Catechism's first Lord's Day by saying that in it there's too much 
focus on comfort and that that overemphasis will lend itself to producing lazy and lax Christians who are not concerned with living properly and appropriately before God in response. But is such an objection, such an accusation actually fair? Well, it's quite unfair, actually. For notice how the Catechism brings out the importance of our response as well. We see it already near the end of the first question and answer where it is stated that by His Holy Spirit, I am assured of eternal life and made heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him, for Christ. Here we see the Catechism hinting at what effect the good news of Jesus Christ should have on our lives. As the, as the scriptures say, what is faith without works? Well, in light of our salvation we've been given, we will be thankful and willing and eager to demonstrate this in the areas that the Catechism will highlight later on in Lord's Days 32 through 52, dealing with our thankfulness, dealing with conversion, living by the commandments, and experiencing communion with God in prayer. But no matter how many works we do, works of thankfulness, no matter how much good we do, no matter how good these good works are, they will never be enough. They will never suffice. We need Jesus Christ and Him alone. Only He is great enough to overcome the sin in our lives and the messes that we have made. Our sin may be great, but we have an even greater Savior. On our own, we will always fall short every time. But by faith in Christ, we know we belong to Him and share in His power and His victory. No sin is too great for Christ to forgive. And therefore, our comfort certainly does far outweigh the discomfort caused by our sin. And this naturally gives us joy. Note the skill of the authors who composed the second question and answer of the catechism. So the question they ask there is deliberate. They ask, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? See how they brought that in there. It's interesting how they put it that way. We may have joy in life and in death only by knowing a certain three things. The three things mentioned here form a sort of uh, table of contents or, or curriculum for what will be unfolded and unpackaged and explained as the catechism moves through the three parts or sections or chapters of the catechism. Here we have the ABCs of the Christian faith. And by knowing our ABCs, we will have and experience joy. What does it say? What does the catechism say you need to know in order to have joy and comfort? First, you must have a knowledge of your sin. What a surprising place to begin 
but how good and how right. You must know your sin. Not so that you can pinpoint it a mile away in others. Or in order to have a, a general superficial understanding of sin. No, but as the catechism says, you must know your own sin. My own sin. And how great it is. In light of God's perfect law that we hear read every Sunday in the Ten Commandments, we begin to see that we actually hate God and our neighbor as the catechism confesses in question and answer eight. Well, it was this knowledge of sin that brought the psalmist in Psalm 130 that we read from earlier to say in the opening verse of that psalm, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And just hear his, his extreme anguish and, and sadness. We know that his sadness stems from a knowledge of his sin. Because in verse 3, he indicates that if his sins were being recorded, he knows he can never stand before a holy God, an infinitely holy God. That's what caused him grief and sorrow in his, in his deepest being. It was his knowledge of his sin. That's what put him in the depths, as it were. So this was no shallow understanding of sin. He didn't pretend that his sin didn't exist, that it wasn't there. He doesn't casually and, and nonchalantly try to dismiss or, or excuse his sin. Instead, he owns it. He was deeply aware of his sinful nature, plagued by his own sinful heart. And he knew the downward spiral that he was in if he did not repent and confess his sin to God. He felt the pressure of his guilt weighing down upon him so that he would confess his sin to God so that his problem and his predicament could be moved and, and removed. That's, that's why he does what we all should do. He cries out to God in desperation to the only one who could help him in his trouble. And this is the knowledge we all must have of our sin. We need to know this knowledge so that we'll make room for our Savior. That brings us to the second point the Catechism says we need to know in order to have joy, namely that there is deliverance from sin. We need to know the truth that the psalmist confesses in Psalm 130 verse 4 when he says, but with you there is forgiveness. Well, that's the gospel, brothers and sisters, in a nutshell. No sin we commit stands outside of the power of God's grace to forgive. As the scripture tells us, where sin did abound, grace abounded all the more. But does that not mean that forgiveness only comes about when God chooses to, to look the other way when it comes to our sin? No, our God doesn't.
just follow the model of permissive parenting, letting things slide by the wayside. No, he is infinitely holy. And so he cannot even look upon our sin. Instead, the Bible teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. A sacrifice for sin had to be offered. An atoning sacrifice made by the righteous one, the Lamb of God, God himself, who had no sin, who was perfectly obedient to God in our Lord Jesus Christ. He had to die so that we could be freed from the penalty and the power of sin and guilt. So God did not look the other way, but he looked directly upon Christ's sacrifice so that he can grant us forgiveness to his people. Having been forgiven by God, we as his people have assurance and peace and calm and comfort in knowing that every sin we confess will be covered over by our Savior's blood. Then where does all of this take us? The Catechism says that a right understanding of sin and salvation leads us into a lifetime of service. Forgiveness fuels thankfulness. You see the wonderful way that the psalmist yearns for this, longs for this in Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6. In the space of these two verses, the psalmist speaks of waiting. Five times he mentions it. Waiting for what? Waiting for forgiveness? He has already received that in verse 4. Now he's waiting for the Lord, for restored fellowship, for, for peace and joy and harmony and the blessings that, that accompany God's forgiveness. He's waiting for the experience of enjoying the, the full comfort of reconciliation with God. And for this he waits eagerly. That is what is indicated by the repetitious language that the psalmist uses here in this psalm, in these verses. And in the comparison he draws with the watchman waiting for the morning. He longs for this fullness of joy with God and joy in God. More than watchmen working the graveyard shift anticipate the coming of dawn that signals the the end of their shift when they can go home and and close their eyes and get some sleep and rest this experience of the psalmist is the is the pattern for us as well we go from the depths to the heights from the valley to the mountaintop from the depths of despair because of the unfailing love and grace the Father has lavished upon us, we now have full redemption, reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Or as the ESV translates it beautifully in verse here in verse 7, full redemption 
redemption. ESV translates it as plentiful redemption. Nothing can or will disrupt that love. Nothing shall separate us or baby Travis or baby Jake. From the youngest to the oldest, nothing will separate us from the love of God for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. How strong is that love? We are called to avail ourselves of that love and absorb ourselves in that love of God. This is what we need to know in order to have joy. For apart from Christ, there is no joy. We forfeited our joy. We lost our joy in paradise when we fell into sin through our ancestors, Adam and Eve. Since then, we have not lived and died happily. Instead, we've lived in sadness and misery as a result. Ever since sin entered the hearts of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, our world and our own corrupt nature in agreement with it has thought it could find happiness in doing what God said, don't do. The world thinks it can find happiness in sinful pleasures and pursuits in religion or in idolatry, in marriage or in breaking a marriage in divorce, having children or in aborting children, in pursuing money or turning to the bottle, in working hard or in escaping work in a life of entertainment and enjoyment. All this has brought us nothing but misery, For none of these ways can bring us true joy and happiness and contentment. So don't heed the advice of the world. Listen to the voice of the Spirit, our good counselor, sent to us by Christ himself and poured out upon believers at Pentecost. The Spirit who enlightens us in all wisdom through the word he inspired and who always points us to the joy that can be found in Christ and in following his will. Although living in joy was disrupted in the garden, God sent his son to this earth to restore our joy. The Lord God graciously sought us out, each of us. It wasn't the other way around. As if we came to him. No, God covenants with us, even with the youngest infants of believing parents. He came to Adam and Eve in the garden and he promised them a Messiah, a Savior. And he promised Abraham a Savior. And he promised David a Savior. And to all the saints of the Old Testament, he promised a Savior. And God bound himself through these covenant promises he made to step into the void in order to redeem his people through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Christ's merits and covered by his blood and clothed in his righteousness, we can confidently answer the psalmist's inquiry in Psalm 130 verse 3. 
when he asked, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Now we can, in Christ, answer that with, I can stand, because I believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, and I belong to him. It's not in my own strength that I stand before God, but I stand before him having had my sins forgiven and having had Christ's righteousness imputed to my account. Brothers and sisters, entrust yourselves to Christ. That's the wonderful gospel that we have. With such a comfort, even dying does not destroy or dampen our joy. So strong it is. For the Christian, it can truly be said that even at the end of our life, our best days are not behind us, but before us. This is your comfort, brothers and sisters. Go on from here living in the joy that accompanies and, and flows 